Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And although Jesus had performed so many miraculous signs before them, they still refused to believe in him. Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they will not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Our Father, we recognize that you give us genuine freedom, but we're dead in our trespasses and sins in your desire not for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We are so grateful for the Spirit of God who stirs a dead heart and shows us the truth of the gospel that we might choose, but we recognize our freedom is limited and that you warn us that not responding is to make a choice. And so I pray in this new year, just as these that Jesus confronted on this day who would not believe, they came to the point where they could not believe because you judicially blinded their eyes. You warned us to seek you while you may be found, to call upon you while you're near. Help us with compassion and a zeal that only the Spirit of God can give to warn men and women and boys and girls of the wrath that is going to come. We pray for our children that you have entrusted to us. I thank you each Sunday night, 26 Sundays out of the year, these who come to faithfully teach and instruct these children. We pray your blessing would be on them. We pray that our children would be able to internalize your word, that they would come to know Christ at an early and tender age, that they would grow strong in the faith as they stand in the midst of a wicked generation. We thank you for our meeting tonight, for our visitors, and we pray your blessing would be over that, that those, some who are listening, who need a church home and they're online, that you would bring them. Help dads to take their responsibility as a family shepherd, to lead their family, to personally engage in a close walk with you. Now, we know that your word is a lamp under our feet and a light to our path, and so we come and like the psalmist who trembled at your word, we recognize it represents your very breath expelled and written on these pages before us. So help us to pay close attention. Spirit of God, come and help me. Without you, I can do nothing. With you, all things are possible. May your ministry be realized today as I preach your word, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Jonah. It's in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. That's about midway. And if you'll scan to the right, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Uh, it's right next to Obadiah, if that will help you, all right? So uh, use the table of contents. Maybe that will be useful. But once you have found it, don't lose it. Because God willing, I am planning to do a total of 10 messages from this book. And if you were not here for the last one, it's foundational. I'll briefly review, but 90% of what I said in the last message 
I will not cover today, yet it's foundational to understanding this small little book written by the prophet Jonah. Now, these Old Testament prophets, they are men for all seasons. They spoke of war and peace and violence and justice and love and faithfulness and truth. And people think, well, they wrote for their day. No, their message is timeless and it's timely for our day. It's relevant because it is the revelation of God Almighty. And so we are reading and studying this morning the Word of God. And these prophets of old really had a twofold ministry. One was to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. They are often described as the voice of Israel's conscience. At least they had a conscience. And we are living in a nation where there seems to be a diminishing conscience, a conscience that is becoming seared and calloused. And sadly, some Christians think, well, the Old Testament was just, again, for Old Testament saints. No, the Apostle Paul reminds the church at Rome, for whatever was written in earlier times, he's speaking about the Old Testament times, what we call the Old Testament, what Jews call the Tanakh. It's an abbreviation for the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. That's how they summarize their Bible. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. In other words, there's something we can learn here, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, he's just reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament did not expire with the Old Testament era. In the early church, for a long time, all they had was the Old Testament Scriptures to preach. Paul would go into the synagogues, and he would defend from the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I hope you have found it. Jonah chapter 1, we're going to read just the first three verses this morning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against me, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let me give you an overview of this chapter because we're going to be here for a few weeks, and I want you to know where we are headed. Uh, We find Jonah here in three different relationships. In the first three verses, he underscores Jonah's relationship to the Lord. Then next time when we come to verse 4, in verses 4 through 16, he underscores Jonah's relationship to the sailors. And then finally in verse 17, he describes Jonah's relationship to the fish. So this morning we're going to focus on Jonah's relationship to the Lord. There's a note-taking outline if you're new here. If you're online, there's a place there where you can print it out. Let's begin by examining Jonah's commission. Jonah's commission. Uh, I want to read verses 1 and 2 again. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Why? For their wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you were here last time, you will remember that it becomes apparent as you read this book that there are four major divisions that are built around two principal commissions. And so when you outline a book of the Bible, which is always helpful, so that if someone asks you what Genesis is about, you can say, oh, four events, four people. Creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's Genesis. Ephesians, what you believe, one through three, how to behave, four through six. You have a working knowledge of Scripture. 
And so as you read through a book of the Bible, you want to look for structural markers. We just read the first structural marker. It was found in verses 1 and 2. It appears again in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. So as you can see on this book chart, chapters 1 and 2 focus around the first commission of Jonah, where chapters 3 and 4 focus around the second commission, or what we may call the recommission of Jonah. The first commission begins in disobedience, and it ends in obedience, whereas the recommission begins in obedience, and it ends in disobedience. Jonah is often called the AWOL prophet. In the beginning of the book, he is absent without leave. At the end of the book, he is absent without love. As you read through these two sections, you discover the first two chapters take place while he's on the sea, and the last two chapters unfold while he is in the city of Nineveh. Um, He is basically in the first two chapters, the theme is God's goodness or God's kindness to Jonah, and the second two chapters, the emphasis is on God's kindness and goodness to the Ninevites. You could further subdivide the book into four major headings. In chapter 1, we find the prodigal prophet. Here's Jonah. He's running from God. In chapter 2, we find the praying prophet. He's running towards God. In chapter 3, we find the preaching prophet where he's running for God. And we will finish the book with the pouting prophet where he is running ahead of God. So it's an easy outline to remember. The uh, prodigal prophet, the praying prophet, you'd be praying too if you were in the belly of the great fish. Uh, he's the preaching prophet, and then he's the pouting prophet. Now, let's zoom in again on verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, who is Amittai? I told you last time it was not important enough for God to tell us who he is, except to underscore that this is Jonah's dad. But while every single word of Scripture is inspired and important, the meaning of both of these names is critically important. There's no filler in Scripture. Nothing is written accidentally. Jesus said every single word down to the smallest jot and tittle is inspired. Now, the word Jonah, Yonah, is the Hebrew word for dove, and it's translated sometimes contextually simply as dove. The first uh, picture of a dove in Scripture, of course, is in Genesis 8. If you remember, Noah sent the dove, and it flew back, the Bible says, with a beak of, inner beak of a freshly picked olive leaf. Um, so the dove has become a picture of, of peace, whether it's on a banner or a flag. Uh, we often use it as a picture of peace. And so Jonah symbolizes peace in his name. He is coming to bring a message of how someone can have peace with God. These people like all of us by nature, are under God's wrath, but they were very close to a earthly wrath if they did not repent. God was going to wipe them off the face of the earth because of their wickedness. And unless you have peace with God, you may live 70 or 80 years, but 70 or 80 years is but your breath on a cold day, James says, compared to an eternity. So we want to die having met the Lord, peace with God. In addition to Jonah the dove, his reference here is the son of Amittai. Amittai comes from the uh, Hebrew word amen. We get our word amen from it. 
And so his name means my truth or my amen or the truth or they amen. And so here in verse 1, God introduces us to Jonah, the son of Amittai, to underscore that he is a prophet, he is a messenger of peace, and he is born of the son of truth. He has some great uh, roots that are behind him, and God wants him to tell the truth to the Ninevites. And the message that he's going to preach is not a message just about love and joy and prosperity. His message is very simple. If you do not repent, you will be destroyed. And by the way, the message is not changed. Jesus said, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Once again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, we noted last time, and I'll just briefly review. It was an hour and 20-minute sermon online if you have the stomach to listen to it that long. But we looked at various approaches to the book of Jonah. Some see it as a fable or as an allegory, or as a parable, but not as a historical event. And yet Jonah is described in historical terms because this is indeed an historical event. You should have out in your margin next to verse 1, if you were here last time, 2 Kings 14, 25. And if you miss the message, you can download the Search the Scriptures app, and you can listen to it at your leisure. 2 Kings 14, 25. Let me begin by reading 2 Kings 14 and verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel sin. So Jeroboam the second, he is this wicked king who is described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And then I had you write verse 25 in the margin. Let me read it to you. He, this king, restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. He was God's tool. He may have been wicked, but God was still going to accomplish his purposes through this king because God sees the long plan. And so he established the border according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, there he is, the prophet, who is from Gethhafer. So here we find a brief record of his earlier prophetic ministry with some very important historical clues. First, the nature of his initial ministry was a message that was quite pleasant. King, God's going to prosper you. He's going to grow your border. That was not difficult to preach. I'm sure he probably enjoyed it. But I want you to see that he's described as a real person, Jonah, the son of Amittai. He serves in a real court under Jeroboam II, or under yeah, King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam lives about 750 years before Christ. And that's when Jonah is in ministry. So we know he's a prophet. We know something about the nature of his prophecy. Uh, we're told the king's name that he served, and we learn something about his genealogy. He's the son of Amittai. And fourth, we learn that he's from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer was an important little place. If you've ever been to Nazareth, about three miles outside of Nazareth is Gath-Hefer. It's about a half a mile from Cana, and that's where he was born and raised, very close 
to where Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life. My point here is right here in 2 Kings chapter 14, we have a historical reference from a historical book about a historical person. And just as Israel was a real nation and Jeroboam was a real king and Hamath and Gethhafer were real places, and the Sea of Arabah was a real sea, so Jonah was a real person. And before we're finished with this prophet, we will see that the clenching argument to reject that this is just a parable, that this is just an allegory, that this is just some moral spiritual lesson, or some would say a fable like Hercules, to reject that, we will see that he's described ultimately by Christ, which is the clenching argument as a real historical person. So if you say that this is just a fable or a parable, as one popular pastor used to do in our town, then you're going against what Jesus said. Let me just make that clear, okay? So your argument is not with Pastor Carl, it's with King Jesus. Jesus said to those doubting Pharisees, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus makes a parallel how Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites as he will be assigned to the generation in which he ministers. Christ portrays Jonah as being in the belly of the sea monster. He's saying, this is a real event, as real as my own resurrection. And that's why he can say in verse 41 of Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, please notice he regarded the repentance of Nineveh as an event that took place, as a historical fact. He is underscoring the historicity of this prophet. And so if the Ninevites could respond to Jonah's life and message, then the Jews who had far much more revelation in Jesus' day, God himself in bodily form was there, the Messiah had come, they could have and they should have repented as well. And so Jonah's preaching, in essence, will be a source of condemnation. Then he adds, listen, the queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus references Jonah also in reference to the queen of the south. She was a real queen. She wanted to come to hear about Solomon because this queen was so enamored with the reports that came, she wanted to come and meet the man personally. So Jesus compares the historicity of Jonah with the Ninevites, with the queen of the south, and so on. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, we need to ask an important question. How precisely did the word of the Lord come to Jonah? Well, quite frankly, we don't know. But we can say in a broad sense, based on Hebrews 1 and verse 1, that the Old Testament prophets received revelation in many portions and in many ways. And a cursory look of the Old Testament affirms that simple truth. 
they were receiving revelation in many portions. And as you read the 39 books of the Old Testament, you will read of law, you will read of prophecy, you will read some parables, you will read some poetry, some of it is doctrinal, some of it is ceremonial, some of it is ethical, some of it is moral. In addition, the writer of the Hebrews underscored that the prophets received not only many portions, but it came in many ways. And again, as you read the Old Testament, dreams and visions. Uh, God spoke sometimes on top of a mountain in a storm and in thunder to Moses. Sometimes he spoke through the still small voice to Elijah. Sometimes he spoke through an object lesson like we'll see with Jonah in the belly of the great fish. Sometimes there were Christophanies where the angel, or maybe better, the messenger of the Lord, came Christ in pre-incarnate appearances before Bethlehem showed up on a number of occasions in the Old Testament and gave direct revelation. Then there were theophanies where God the Father himself gave direct revelation like he gave to Moses up there on top of Mount Sinai in the midst of thunder and lightning and fire. So sometimes his word... Uh, also came just literally, directly, through the inspiration as the Spirit of God wrote through them, and sometimes through direct communication. It came in many portions and in many ways, and as you read the Old Testament prophets, there is one ongoing message simply to be continued. It's incomplete. Why? Because the Scriptures spoke of Messiah. Moses saw my day. He wrote of me. Abraham saw his day as well. And so it was incomplete because it's not until the Lord Jesus, until God leaves heaven and steps on the planet, that all that is written of him is complete and all the details are filled in. So every prophet spoke of Christ, and Jesus will affirm that to be true even of Jonah, that his experience is an analogy of Christ's own resurrection. So we're not told how God spoke to Jonah, but I am content to know that he did speak, and that's what's critical to our understanding the book. Whether he spoke inwardly or outwardly, the Lord, for whatever reason, does not tell us, but he does underscore the word of the Lord. See the caps? It's the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. By the way, that phrase appears a hundred times in the Old Testament, and in every instance it appears, God is getting ready to do something. Someone was about to go into action, or something was about to happen, and something begins to unfold in relatively fast motion, and this book is no different. And so Jonah is not left to wonder, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to say? And neither are we. God has plainly spoken, and we need to read and study what he has said. God spells it out here for Jonah. Notice verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, there are three commands that summarize his commission. You should circle them or underline them. Arise, go, and cry. By the way, you need a paper Bible. You'll get a lot more out of this sermon. 
I'm not against the electronics. I was one of the first electronic Bible testers in America. So I've been using electronic Bibles, but in case you're wondering, this is what it looks like. And when you have a Bible that you can mark up and read, it's going to stick in a way that no electronic Bible can accomplish. There's benefits to them, but you need a paper copy. And if you don't have one, come to meet the pastor tonight. Three imperatives, three commands. These are not suggestions. There was a popular preacher years ago, Robert Schuller. You remember the Glass Cathedral? He had actually the largest television and radio ministry in the world, but he was a heretic. And so he spoke not of the Ten Commandments. He did a series on the Ten Suggestions. They're not suggestions. They're commandments. These are imperatives. You could put an exclamation point after each of them. Go to Nineveh, the great city. And the adjective great is not accidental because Nineveh was a large and prominent city. The Assyrian Empire was a strong, powerful, rich, and yet evil empire. And ancient historians tell us that Nineveh was the capital. And so sometimes Nineveh is just used to describe uh, the place called Assyria. Washington, D.C. becomes emblematic of the United States of America. And ancient historians tell us that it was a large city, larger than its successor Babylon. It was powerful and it was intimidating. And when Jonah is called to preach around 750 B.C., Assyria is the dominant empire. And 22 years later, in 720, or 25 years later, in 722 B.C., they're going to come down and they're going to crush the ten northern tribes. Remember, Jonah's ministry, again, the introductory message is important. We described how the kingdom split into ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. So we just read from 2 Kings 14 of two kings reigning at the same time because the kingdom is split north and south. So they're going to come down in 722 B.C. and carry away the ten northern tribes. Many of you know the city of Nineveh, that it stood on the east bank of the Tigris River, and it's across from the Iraqi city of Mosul that some of our Marines have been to. And you can see on this map that he uh, comes from a place called gath Do we have a map? There we go. So um, in the middle there, maybe it's not the clearest map, but you can see Israel. And north of the word and the south of the word Israel, you can see a body of water. There's a river that comes from the mountains, and it creates a lake. That's the first body called the Sea of Galilee. A lot of Christ's ministry, of course, took place there. And then that river continues, the Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is very important in Scripture, not only in the past, but in the future. Someday men will be able to fish there. That's what the Scripture teaches when Messiah comes back. Now, in Israel, west of the Sea of Galilee, there's a place called Galilee. And there's a province called Galilee, and there's a city called Nazareth, where Jesus, as you know, spent the first 30 years of his life. Three miles from Nazareth, a half a mile from Cana, is Gathafer, where Jonah the prophet grew up. And if you come with me to Israel, sometimes we'll have the opportunity to point out that particular location. And so this is not some Jewish city within Israel that he's being called to go and to preach. He's going to Nineveh. 
These are Gentiles, and they're not just Gentiles. They are wicked, depraved Gentiles. Now, it's a 500-mile journey from where he is in Gathafair, and it's not the distance that bothers him as it is the place. God wants him to go to Nineveh. Now, that's Jonah's commission. Go to Nineveh and preach. In addition to Jonah's commission, I want us to think a little bit about Jonah's message. Jonah's message. The message of truth that Jonah is to preach is very simple. It's found in chapter 3 and in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in English, five words in the Hebrew text, making it the shortest recorded message of any prophet to a rebellious people. Now, notice here in chapter 1 and verse 2 why it is that God wants him to preach this message yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it. Why? Because or for, it's causal. Their wickedness has come up before me. Paraphrase, God is saying, I've had it up to here. Just like the sins of Sodom that came up to God as a stench, so the sins of this perverted, wicked, and cruel people had come into the presence of God. And so Jonah's mission here in the NASB is to cry against it. The CSB says, preach against it. The Net Bible says, announce judgment against it. So he is not so much informing the people of their specific sins because they are covered over in them. They know their sins. He is here to preach the consequence of their sin, that judgment is coming and that it is imminent. And by the way, God never gave this prophet a promise that he would be successful or that the people would repent or that he would even survive this mission. For all he knew, his head would end up on a pole. And I should mention that there are three evidences from the historical and archaeological data that that underscores what a wicked people they were. And again, a great deal of light is shed on the archaeological record that has miraculously survived. In the first place, this was the center of a fertility cult. They had worship services, so to speak, that were built around sexual immorality to worship different gods. It was a place that was filled with licentiousness and immorality, and the Ninevites had as their dubious distinction of being known for their utter filth. And by the way, America is becoming more and more like Nineveh. And so today, if I as a pastor speak against transgenderism or homosexuality as sin, then I'm the sinner. And we need to pray for our Canadian pastors because starting this week, it's the law for a pastor to stand in the pulpit and tell people that they can be changed and freed from a transgender, homosexual lifestyle will now be against the law. You say it will never happen in America. I guess you haven't read the 2020 Democratic platform, have you? Pull it up online this afternoon. Type in homosexuality. Type in transgenderism. They've got four paragraphs describing what they want to do. 
They too want to make it a law here in the United States of America. And so we have this unholy trinity, the Speaker of the House, the President, and the Vice President, who are peddling wickedness, immorality, abortion, and now preachers like me, where are the evil ones? Now you need to pray for those people. God cares about our speaker and our president and our vice president, but they are lost. I don't care how much they go to church, they're lost. You will know them by their fruit. I'm not judging them. I'm just making a judgment of what Scripture says. So Nineveh, in the first place, had a fertility cult built around sexual immorality. In the second place, Nineveh was known for its child sacrifice. Massive idols made out of stone have been dug up, and they were in the form of a bull with outstretched arms where a parent would come and place their baby on this God known as a bull, and there he would or she would be sacrificed in a fire to some false god. Not all that different in modern autonomous America, where man worships himself and doesn't want to be inconvenient, inconvenienced by a baby. So people want to have sex without responsibility. Oh, the altar is a little different. It's a little more sophisticated in a Planned Parenthood clinic. It's sanitized. It's a medical environment, but it's no different. It's a wickedness. And so they would take, as their own writings that have survived, they would take the baby and they would place it in the arms of this bull god, and they would light it on fire, and the priest would chant and yell in order to drown out the cries of the little one. And God says, that disturbs me. Third, the Assyrians were known for their cruelty and warfare. You can see pictured here the reconstructed central gate to the city of Nineveh. Here's a picture of one, another picture of one of their rebuilt walls. Much of Nineveh has been excavated, and it's revealed quite a bit, and that much of what's been rebuilt was using actually original stones, but as they have unfolded this place, we find what a warlike people they are. They were cruel. They were heartless. They were inhumane. Every time we go to Israel, we go to Yad Vashem, which is like our Holocaust Museum in D.C., and they unfold the wickedness of what took place during the Second World War and the six million Jews who were exterminated. And as bad as that is, nothing compares in modern military history to what the Assyrians did when they fought people. One of their kings describes how they would skin people alive, and then they would have their bodies impaled on stakes. Sometimes another king wrote of how they would bury their captives alive. Others record slaughtering their victims and then using their blood to paint their walls. And they wrote about this because they were proud of it. They wanted everyone to know the hallmark of their warfare techniques. And if you want to get a flavor of what it was like, read the book of Nahum. 
Let me just read a few verses from the prophet Nahum. He prophesies 100 years after Jonah in 650 B.C. So two generations down the line where the grandchildren had repented of their grandparents' repentance, which is a reminder to me that every generation is new and fresh, and every generation must make a decision for Christ. In Nahum chapter 3, the prophet wrote, "'Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs, the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming.'" Many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. The charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace." This is some ancient Assyrian art that has survived, and it's describing one of the kings poking out the eyes of one of the captors. Here's another carving that's been found. It happened after the Hebrews were attacked by the Assyrians and impaling the Jewish people on stakes, and still another decorating the city gates picturing their cruelty. So both the archaeological record and the Word of God and what Jonah tells us without going into all the details describe what an immoral, brutal, unmerciful, and perverted people the Ninevites were. They were inhumane. So how is God going to deal with this? He first sends his prophet so that they can repent and be forgiven. Every now and then, somebody says, well, why doesn't God do something? Look at what's happening in the world. It's just getting worse, it seems, by the month. God is doing something, and his silence is significant because he wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He is giving people more opportunity to respond, but there is coming a day probably sooner than most of us realize when the dam of God's grace and mercy will break to his wrath. Judgment is coming. God always takes note of what nations are doing. Even here in America, he sees our immorality and our filth. He sees how night after night people download movies that are filled with explicit sexual scenes. He sees our abortion mills. He sees our redefinition of marriage. He sees our willingness to accept and normalize fornication and adultery. He sees our willingness to accept homosexuality and transgenderism. And they tell me now there are some hundred genders when God says there's only two. And yet the wonder of it all, as God saw the wickedness of Nineveh, he still loved and cared for these people. That's why he sent a prophet, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a message of grace. Could he have destroyed the city immediately? Yes, he could have. And so the prophecy that we're going to study is not a hard, fast prophecy. God is extending his mercy to them. God cared for the Ninevites as we should care for the generation in which we live. So there's Jonah's commission. 
There's Jonah's message. Third, there's Jonah's response. Jonah's response. Listen to verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, twice over, it's underscored from the presence of the Lord because God wants to emphasize that the location is not the issue, but God is the issue. It's not the place. It's the person of the Lord that's the real issue. Now, obviously, on the one hand, Jonah knew that he could not flee from the literal presence of an omnipotent God. And though there are certainly servants in the history of the church and even amongst the Jews who tried to flee, you can't flee from God. Many a pastor, they have problems in a church, and so what do they do? They put out their resume and they go from one church to another, only to find out the same problems are in every church, just a different set of faces. He had read what King David had written. King David said in that great Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit. My granddaughters memorized Psalm 139. That was a great gift to us when they recited the whole psalm. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So Jonah knew he could not flee from the literal presence of the Lord. On the other hand, his plan is to get far enough from God so that he could remove himself from God's call and influence on his life. After all, if you're 3,000 miles away in Tarshish, how can you preach, <clears throat> how can you preach to the Ninevites? Now, Tarshish was a city in Jonah's day that was considered to be at the very ends of the earth. Here's a map to help you to get perspective. You see uh, Joppa there. That would be Tel Aviv today. I've stood on that bluff that overlooks the bay where Jonah was to get on a, where Jonah got on a boat and he went to Tarshish. It's the opposite direction. It's southern Spain. Spain. God says go east. What does he do? He goes west. Now there are some scholars today who say, well, we don't know where Tarshish is. They're educated beyond their own intelligence. For 1,900 years, the church knew where Tarshish is, and the Jews have always known where Tarshish is. It's about 2,500 miles from Joppa. So he's 3,000 miles away, if he goes to Tarshish, from where God wants him to be. And in any case... He seeks to flee, he goes down to the bay, he gets in a ship, and of course, he's going because he doesn't want to go to the Ninevites. Now, have some compassion on this brother. We can be quick to judge him, but number one, when you consider what the Ninevites were like in their utter disdain for the Jews... The Iranian people, and understand there is an Iranian church of born-again believers that we should pray for. 
It's not like the Hebrew wears the white hat and, you know, the Muslim wears the dark hat and God loves the Jew and he hates the Muslim. It's not like that at all. And we'll speak about that before we're done with this prophet. But there's born-again people in Iran. But on the same hand, there's people, it's written into their constitution and bylaws, they want to wipe out Israel and drive them into the sea. That's the kind of spirit the Ninevites have towards the Jewish people in Jonah's day. Think about Elijah the prophet. He ran for his life over a single queen, Queen Jezebel. One woman sent him into fleeing. That here's Jonah. Jonah, there's an entire kingdom that sends him a running. Now, it's rather interesting. He goes down. He books a fair, space available. He's got the money. He could have easily rationalized, this must be providence. This must be the will of God. And sometimes that's what we do. We make up our mind when the circumstances seem favorable that this must be God's will. Providence or no providence, it's not circumstances that are the ultimate test. It's the Word of God. And this man had a clear word from God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And we can take providences and distort them in our fallen heart because the heart is desperately wicked by nature. Or the father of lies with his fiery darts can convince you. And that's what he always does. Has God said, you can't really believe it. You really can't camp on it. And we can use our circumstances and put God's stamp of approval on it. So he goes, he buys a ticket, he begins the journey, and many a Christian might have thought in our day that when they do the same things, these circumstances mean it's God's will. Now, I don't think for a second Jonah thought that. He knew he was running from God. There was no doubt in his mind that he was disobeying. Now, at best, your circumstances might be confirmatory, but they are to be in subjection to the authority of Scripture. And we live in a day more and more, you see these movements like Bethel and Hillsong and all these uh, prosperity preachers, and they put circumstances over the authority of Scripture. They put experience over the authority of Scripture. I spoke in tongues, ipso facto, it must be real. What we are seeing in this movement in our nation is no different from what I've witnessed in India that Hindus do. Speak in tongues, shake uncontrollably, fall on the floor. No, it's the authority of Scripture that must be the final rule of life. Now think about this for just a moment. He's an unusual prophet. Think about what Amos wrote. Amos was a contemporary of Jonah. Amos wrote this, the Lord God has spoken. Who can refuse to prophesy? I have a clear word from God. I know what I need to do. This is the only prophet in the history of prophets who ever takes a direct word from God and chooses to disobey it. Now, there are certainly other men. Moses was a prophet, the coming prophet who came, Jesus, was likened to Moses. Jeremiah was a prophet, and maybe for a time they rebelled, but this particular prophet outright rebels. Now, why did he do it? 
Now, there are several explanations that are given. Some say he was afraid. If you go and preach, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, that's not the way you win friends and influence people. That's a good way to get yourself beheaded. And as I've thought about it, I don't think for a second that that's what drove this decision. He was not a fraidy cat. In fact, none of the prophets were. Remember, you didn't inherit this office. You didn't uh, choose yourself to be a prophet. You were handpicked by God himself. There's not a single prophet in the Holy Scripture who were scared fraidy cats. Second, as I study the book of Jonah, I find the reason for fear not keeping with this book. Look at verse 12 of this chapter. He said to them, that is the sailors, we'll study it next time, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Those aren't the words of a coward. No coward would say, pick me up, throw me overboard into the sea. Some have said, well, he ran because he was a bigoted Hebrew. And they argue that he was a reflection of the people of Israel at the time, which is not true. But nonetheless, since he was a Jew, why should I care about those pagan goyim? Let the Gentiles perish. Who cares? We're the chosen people of God. It's an interesting explanation. But there is certainly nothing in the record of Scripture that would say that this man was a bigot. In fact, I think there's a theological reason why he fled, and I don't have to wonder because it's found in the text of Scripture. Look at chapter 4 in verse 2. The reason he fled is because he was a patriot, and his patriotism was driven by his theology. Let me read chapter 4 in verse 2. He prayed, that is Jonah, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. See, Jonah did not want to preach this message of grace because he knew that if Nineveh repented, then God would spare Nineveh. And because Jonah loved his nation, he wanted the Ninevites to be judged. Now, remember, we covered some of this in the introductory message. Remember, the northern kingdom had been living in disobedience. And there were three prophets who were contemporaries of Jonah, one Isaiah, two Amos, and three Hosea. And when you read those men, their preaching and message to the northern kingdom was the same. God is sick and tired of your disobedience. And if you do not repent as the people of God, he's going to bring a nation down from the north and he's going to discipline you. Amos warned Israel, therefore, Amos 5, 27, therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus. That's Assyria. I'll make you go in exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Hosea 9 said, they will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they, the northern kingdom, will eat unclean food. In Hosea 11 and verse 5, God again underscored the captor would be Assyria. They will not return to the land of Egypt. That will not be the place of captivity at this time. You're not going back to to be prisoners in Egypt like they were in Moses' day. 
But where are you going to go? Assyria. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king because they refuse to return to me. Now, I won't take the time, but jot down Isaiah 7, 17 to 25. Isaiah gives an extended prophecy, giving the details of what the Assyrian captors are going to accomplish. Now, if you know me, I love this country with its many flaws. And if I could have served to defend our nation, I would have, but my left arm kept me from doing so, even if I wanted to. My father served in the Second World War and the Korean War, and I have two sons who are Marines. I love this nation, and many of you do, and yet I am equally disgusted with the shameful ways in which we have gone. And certainly no nation is perfect any more than there are any perfect churches in America. And it's still, in many ways, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. That's why people are clawing their way to want to come into it. Some, I suppose, no doubt to destroy us, but they want to come here because it's the land of promise. And God's Word teaches in the Torah that we should be compassionate to the alien and the foreigner who wants to come in, but he also underscored that there were certain parameters by which someone could come in. And the New Testament teaches the same truth in Acts, that there are borders that God established because without borders you have no nation. And these drugs are coming in that we're not even talking about. Marijuana that's 20 times stronger than the pot people spoke 30, smoked 30 years ago. And it's destroying. We've gone in three years from 20,000 overdoses resulting in death to over 100,000. There are things that are happening that are beyond belief. And yet though we had a faulty start, nonetheless... The problem was not our ancestors. The problem is fallen man. That's the problem. That's always the problem. And at least we had enough moxie to repent of some of our former evils. But the problem is that man is sinful. Now put yourself for a moment in Jonah's shoes. As much as I love the United States, Jonah loves his land, Israel. But suppose for the sake of argument, in this day, I am called to go to Beijing to preach to communist China. Now, again, there's a lot of believers in communist China, maybe as many as 100 million. I've been there a few times. There are great people, those who know and love the Lord. But there's a lot of godless people who want to destroy America. We're feeding the bear that's probably going to eat us unless we wake up. But I am supposed to go to Beijing and to preach because there's a message that God is going to destroy China. But there's also a message that if God doesn't destroy China, then God's going to use China to destroy America. So what am I to do? That's really what Jonah is facing. To put it in more Jewish terms, you're a Jew living in New York City during the Second World War. You have been witnessing the destruction of your own people being annihilated in the gas chambers and starved to death. And yet you're called by God to go and preach to the German people. Again, many good German people today. You should pray for the German church. Many great things in the church in America today come out of the Reformation that took place in Germany. So I'm not ragging on Germans. Save your letters. 
But you're supposed to go and preach to Hitler and the German people because if they repent, this wicked people, God will spare them. But there's also a message that if God spares them, given enough time, they will come and destroy you. So here's Jonah. He's a patriot. He understands the cruelty of the Assyrian people. And God wants to give them this message of grace that they might repent and not be destroyed. And yet in the same breath, he's got some other contemporary prophets who are saying there is coming a point where they are going to come down and they are going to crush you. So what are you going to do? Well, he'd rather go on a Mediterranean cruise as a tourist than be a prophet at this point. But when he turns in his prophet's badge, as we'll see next time, you can't resign as a prophet. The real issue is that he has a clear word from God concerning God's plan and will for his life, and he has to choose whether or not he's going to obey it. Now, as we work through this short little book, we're going to see four constructs, four biblical principles unfold concerning the will of God. Let me introduce you to them this morning, and then as we work through Jonah, we will highlight the various aspects of them. Number one, four applications concerning the will of God. Number one, the will of God is as flawless as God is. The will of God is flawless, is as flawless as God is. God's will is flawless, not only in prospect, but in retrospect. Jot down Romans 12, 1 and 2. Most of you have it memorized. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's writing to believers in Rome. He has just described 11 chapters concerning the grace and mercy of God. In light of that, therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God I've just described, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Then he adds, and do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to notice here in verse 2 the three descriptive words concerning the will of God. First of all, it is good. The will of God is good, and it is as good as God himself. And that's why it demands our obedience, because God's plan, God's will for your life and for mine is good. And only a renewed mind can embrace that. Joseph embraced it. He was accused as being a sex offender. He was accused of rape, and he never came close to the woman and ran from the woman and ended up in jail. But he understood that this was part of God's good will for his life, and so he will later testify to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Only a renewed mind can embrace the will of God as good. And Satan will try to convince you that the will of God is not good. That God is ripping you off. That he has a better plan for you. And when you are in the center of God's will, you will know it is good. But not only is it good, it is acceptable. Uh, The ESV says it's pleasing. The Net Bible says it is well-pleasing. 
And again, for the growing, maturing will a believer, he realizes God's will is just a wonderful thing. It just delights my heart. It pleases my heart. It is acceptable for my life. In Abraham, we have an example of a believer who found the will of God to be acceptable. Hard as it was, God told him to take Yitzhak, Isaac, up to the top of Mount Moriah. He's somewhere between 20 and 30 years of age. He's not a little boy. He has the ability, if he so chose, to overthrow that old man. But because he's a picture of Christ and because he too is walking in faith, like Jesus, no one will take my life, I will give it. And he binds him on the altar, and God says, I want you to take that knife and put it through his chest, and then I want you to burn him into a piece of ash. But they both believe that they're going to come back together. But Abraham saw this as part of God's acceptable will because he knew it came from the mouth of a good and holy God. The Bible says his commandments are not a burden. And by the way, this will can be proved. It's the Greek word dokimazo that means to test and to prove by experience. It's used in the Septuagint of David who said, no, I haven't proved that armor. I can't say for sure that that armor is reliable, Saul. It is something that can be proved in the laboratory of life is that which is good and acceptable. Look at the third word, perfect, perfect. When the will of God is characterized by perfect, we need to understand there is a number of times in the Bible in our English text where the word is translated perfect, and it's used in different ways. One is the word akrizo, and we get our word accurate from it, and it describes something that is precise. There's another word that is used to describe something that is well-fitted for a specific end, like the perfect solution, say, to some problem or puzzle. But the word that's used in Romans 12 and verse 2 is the word teleos that is sometimes translated mature or complete. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is underscoring is that the will of God that it is good and acceptable, it's perfect, it's complete, it's not lacking in any respect. It is so perfect you cannot add anything to it to make it better. You can't take anything from it somehow improving it. It is good, it is acceptable, it is perfect, which is why Proverbs says in the third chapter, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Please note, he doesn't say don't use your understanding, just don't lean on it, don't trust in it. Your understanding needs to come from a regenerated mind that comes from the Bible. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Listen, God is more interested in revealing His will than you are in knowing it. He wants to make your path straight. King David said it this way, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of the heart. The Hebrew text means the, the, the desires you have in your heart when you're delighting in God is they'll originate from Him and they'll be consistent with His Word. Someone once said to me, because of his false view of God, he said, Pastor Carl, I'm not sure this ministry is like what I should be doing. I said, what do you mean? It's too much fun. Man, I'm loving it. I'm getting paid to do it. He had a wrong view of God. 
when you're in the center of God's will, it should be fun. Doesn't mean it's not hard work and at times exhausting, but it's a delight. That's the way God made life to be. It is good. It is acceptable. It is perfect. The will of God is flawless. Secondly, the will of God is found in the Word of God. That's the second construct that we will see underscored in the prophet Jonah. The will of God is found in the Word of God. This is why it is essential that we saturate our mind with Scripture. The great Presbyterian preacher who did not embrace replacement theology, one of the rare Presbyterians who said, no, the church is not the new Israel. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he said 90% of the will of God is from the neck up. His point is, is that it's based on God's Word. It's not based on experience, it's based on the truth of God's Word. And that's why it is essential that we saturate our minds from God, with God's Word. It is far easier to find the will of God for your life when you're in the book, and it is far more difficult to find God's will when you're not in the book. And that's why Satan and all of his craftiness and methodologies has taken the Bible out of the pulpit. The average sermon in America, in early America, was an hour and a half. I preach for an hour most weeks, sometimes longer. Somebody said to me, if you cut your sermons in half, so many more people would come. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in growing a church for numbers sake. I'm interested in building disciples. And if it's too long, there's the door. And I don't say that in arrogance. I say it based on what God calls me to do as a pastor. And the evil one has buffaloed the evangelical church, and that's why so many are apostatizing or coming up with new twisted doctrines. So yes, we took someone off the radio this week because he has this new view, a term that he coined all by himself that no one has held to in 2,000 years ago except Seventh-day Adventists that you're judged in the light you have, such that if you obey the light you have and you don't believe in Jesus, you can still go to heaven. No, you must be born again to see the inside of the kingdom of God. And you can only be born again by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, the will of God is found in my willingness to obey it. It's flawless. It's found in Scripture. But God's will is also found in my willingness to obey it. You see, the real issue is not so much God's will as, as it is my will. So the key to finding God's will that you do not know is obeying the will of God that you do not know. Jot down this verse, John 7, 17. Jesus said this, the occasion was to some unbelieving Pharisees. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Now, that's a powerful, powerful statement. You see, some people are never able to embrace the truth for the simple reason they don't really want the truth. And that's why Jesus said, unless you change your mind, unless you repent, you will perish. See, if a person is not willing to obey God's will, then they will never really discover it to be true. So you're dealing with some person, they're living in some immoral relationship, 
and you talk to them about their need to receive Christ as their Lord, and they begin to say, well, I'm not sure the Bible's true. I'm not sure there is a God, but they know the Bible's true because it's alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And when you share it, even though they say it's not true, it's poking the heart. They know there's a God because creation and conscience is shouting it. I'm not sure there's a heaven. I'm not sure there's a hell. And you begin to talk to them. You seem to make zero progress. You see, the real problem is not our apologetic because there's a plethora of information to show the uniqueness of the Christian message. The real problem is their will. They don't want God's will. They know it's a sin to commit adultery. Why? Because not only is it written on tablets of stone, it's written in the heart. And so the Gentiles not having the law are law unto themselves, showing the work of the law with their conscience defending them or accusing them. And so until they face their sin, until they come to grips with the reality that we are all rebels by nature, they will never come to Christ. So if you're not willing to do God's will, then the Spirit of God can never open your eyes up. But if you do respond to the light you have, God will give you more light, and ultimately He will give you the plan of salvation. And let me just say that there are hundreds of people who are on these three campuses, who have come to Christ simply because they said, I want to know, I want you to show me, Lord. And when that is your heart, you will know whether this is sourced in heaven or manufactured in Nazareth. You will know precisely what truth is. And by the way, if you're born again, God will also help you to find his will when you are obeying him because when you obey what you know, it's like going through a mind with a lamp on. You can only see so many feet, but if the lamp's on, you can go the next 10 feet and the next 10 feet, and he will unfold his will forth. And finally, well, let me just camp here for another second before I leave it. I got a couple of more things I want to say. Let me tell you something that happened to me as a new Christian. Dr. Bill Bright, he was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he was speaking to us. I felt very privileged to hear him that day because there was just a small group of us. And Campus Crusade was a great organization. And there are many great people that this church supports, but they're on the slide. They're beginning to waffle just like people all across America are. But Dr. Bright said, he gave us this note-taking outline. The third sheet at the top said, the will of God for your life. And the bottom line was a signature line. It was a blank page. He said, I want you to present yourself tonight to the Lord. And if you're willing to present yourself to him without any reservation, just sign the bottom line. See, a lot of us, we, we, we want to see the details. You know, well, give me the specifics before I can sign it. No, he was underscoring, we have to be willing to say, anything you want me to do, anything you want me to say, anywhere you want me to go, anything you want me to give, I'm totally yours. I'm a living and holy sacrifice. And when we present ourselves to God in that way, you will indeed discover the will and the plan that he has for your life. Now the fourth principle, the will of God is always costly when disobeyed. It's always costly when you disobey it. Disobedience to God's will is always costly. It's a colossal waste of time. They left Egypt to go to the promised land. It should have taken 11 or 12 days. It took 40 years. 
God had Moses send in 12 spies not to see if they could take it. It was promised, but how they would take it. Ten came back, the majority report, we can't go in there. There's giants in the land. We're just like grasshoppers. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go in. We can take it just as he promised. Now, they saw the same giants, but they saw a great God. See, the minority report emphasized the problems. These guys underscored the promise that God is great, that he can accomplish precisely that which he has promised. After all, he split the Red Sea. After all, he brought us out of Egypt with these ten mighty plagues. We need to believe God and not repeat history. But when we disobey God... We lose. King David described it after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Two great psalms that unfold his time of grief and what it was like in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. And sin, it just, well, it prematurely ages you. It takes you down a lot quicker than God would have liked you to have lived, possibly. But he is a miserable man because he's, because he's describing that time when he had unrepented sin in his life. And I'll tell you, it's not the lost man that's the most miserable man. It's the saved man who's tasted the goodness of God, but is living out of fellowship with God. Some years ago, when Audrey and I were living in Dallas, Texas, I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, and we would share the gospels trying to reach CEOs of major corporations, and they had ministries to reach the down-and-outers, and they had ministries in that organization we worked for to reach the up-and-outers. And I shared the gospel with this 58-year-old man. He was a multimillionaire, owned the largest Mercedes dealership in the world, and he bowed his head there in that country club, and he asked Christ to be his Savior. And I met with him for the next seven or eight weeks. And then I was leaving Dallas to come and pastor this church. And he said to me, I'll never forget it. Jim said to me, Carl, I must be the most fulfilled man in the city of Dallas. My only regret is that I wasted 58 years before I found Christ. And I hope you see this morning, if you know Christ, the problem is not in finding God's will, it's in doing God's will. And one minute out of the will of God is a colossal waste of time. And if you've never met Christ, if you've never been born again, He laid His life down for you, made a full payment for your sin, proved His ability to do it when God raised Him from the dead, and if you will come in humility and trust him to forgive you and change you, he'll save you in a moment's time. Now, our Father, we thank you for the chance to study this great prophet of God. Help us in the weeks ahead to be changed by our exposure to the message that he recorded for us. I pray today, Father, for someone who's within the sound of my voice, maybe live streaming, maybe in Graniteville and Grays or in this auditorium or in one of the overflow rooms, and they're unsure of their eternal destiny. They've never called upon Christ in faith. Help them with humility of heart to simply say, Lord Jesus, save me.
And Father, I pray for those who have done that. We know that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. That even independent of Satan, sometimes we are just carried away, your word said, by our own fallen nature. Help us to see that your will and your plans for our life are nothing but good and acceptable and perfect. May we live to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.